It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. If you have been following Daily Thunders over the past five months, or have kept up to date on my latest Sunday sermon series, you'd be noticing a definite trend in Eric Ludi messages. I've been using the stories of history to instruct us in how to live triumphantly today. For instance, this particular message is number 58 in my series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War II, and I've approached this series with a decidedly British lens on, since Winston Churchill has been my primary muse. But on Sunday mornings, I'm nine sessions into a fun and profound series entitled The Spiritual Biography of a Nation, and this series is decidedly red, white, and blue, as it addresses the providential formation of the United States of America. If you would like to access the entirety of either of these history-based training series, you can find a direct link at ellersley.com forward slash daily. If you didn't already figure it out, this is Eric, and I've got a very unique message for you today. It's one of those messages that is hard to describe in a simple way, but I can say that it will teach you about the historic motivations of soldiers to carry out their duties on the battlefield and how these earthly motivations compare and contrast with the heavenly motivations of the Christian to carry out his or her commission in this lost and dying world. Great Britain used the Order of the White Feather to get its men to don those khaki uniforms. The Kingdom of Heaven, on the other hand, recruits its soldiers very differently. So this message uh, is called the Order of the White Feather. If you've been sitting here in the crowd, you notice that it changed uh, (laughs) three times. Uh, I've had a working title for it all morning, and when I was driving over, I was like, you know what, a Latin title, those have never gone well for me. Uh, As far as other people, when they see it pop up in the podcast, they're like, skip. And even though that the Latin title is so intriguing to me, uh, so that's that's where, and it's still in the message, so I'll, I'll bring that in, but... This will still say it, I think, even though it's somewhat of a fudge on uh, what the real focus is. The Latin word, which I haven't covered yet, is the real focus. But I think this is going to be a unique uh, spin on it. I'm going through World War II, and technically I'm in the uh, latter months of 1943 right now. And so if, if you understand the flows of World War II, uh, you know that uh, Hitler up until... Uh, right about spring of 1943 is going to be unstoppable. He is going to be dominant. He's going to basically possess all of Europe. There are a few exceptions to that. Switzerland is still a neutral, and Sweden. Uh, you have uh, uh, Spain, and you know, so you have these things that, yeah, they're they're not taken, but uh, and uh, so in this. Uh, landscape, you're going to see a shift in 1943 where the Allies start winning. And they're going to uh, take Northern Africa and Operation Torch. They're going to uh, take Sicily, which is an island right on the toe of Italy. And they're going to begin to march their way up uh, into Italy, which is creating a crisis for Hitler. He has, he's never lost. And he's also going to lose in Stalingrad in the spring to the Soviet Russians, and that's his first loss in the entire war. So if you're an allied guy, you're like, yeah, yeah, this is very exciting. But it's interesting because victory doesn't necessarily mean that everything just becomes easy. You have uh, a couple very difficult years left in this war. And uh, as, as far as 
where we're at and where we're going, I'm going to almost like push a pause button because we're preparing for a battle called Overlord or an operation called Overlord, which we understand is D-Day. And that's going to be in 1944. So a lot of what is taking place is positioning for this. Uh, and you're going to see everything sort of become, come to a head and the ultimate victory is going to be won. But in this process, I would like to dig a little deeper than, you know, usually you would when you're thinking about war. Because, you know, to be honest, I am not uh, a guy who enjoys war itself, but for whatever reason, I enjoy war. How does that work? I, I enjoy the thoughts behind it, the, the, the friction and the challenge. I don't enjoy the fact that people go off and die, nor do I enjoy, you know, if you were to get into more of the granular details of war, it is so, so horrific. If anyone of us has ever been in war, typically they can't talk about it. It's so traumatizing to them. Uh, World War I vets, uh, it, which is possibly arguably the most uh, horrifying war that's ever existed, even though there's going to be more deaths in World War II, in a sense, they solved a lot of riddles of living in trenches and various things that are going to, in the beginning of World War I, they just would stick guys in the trench on the front lines and they'd be bombed day in and day out and they never, weren't thinking of giving them rest. It's just like, well, that's our frontline troops, we just keep them there. And so there was a lot of discoveries of recognizing, yeah, and they come back insane. <laughs> that, that didn't work. And so there's going to be certain discoveries in the process because shell shock is going to actually become a very real thing out of World War I. They'd never had this type of battle before. And so World War I is going to be a beginnings of something. And then, of course, World War II is only 20 years later. And it's because World War I didn't finish correctly. And you're actually going to have the Allies sort of stick a knife in the back of Germany and turn it and say, how do you feel now after you started that war? And so the Germans are going to retaliate, and that's, in a sense, what World War II is. And so I want to get below the surface to the motivation behind the soldiers in these different countries. And I'm just, it's going to be short uh, because, you know, all the Daily Thunders this week are a little shorter than normal. But uh, the Order of the White Feather, I'll, I'll go into that as we progress. Uh, so here's our Latin term, uh, cantus firmus. Uh, it means fixed song. Now, I'm not exactly sure if you were uh, in music or music theory or uh, music composition, if you would know what this word is. But uh, it's this idea of how a lot of famous musicians and a lot of uh, even musicians in here, how we actually gain our original inventiveness and ingenuity in how we even write songs. And it comes from typically this cantus firmus, which is an existing melody that then you put over new words and you create a new song but with an existing melody and so for instance Beethoven and Mozart are actually going to learn how to compose by utilizing other compositions and this has been very normal throughout uh, the uh, centuries that and it's, it even has a name to it that's how familiar it is so a lot of hymns we sing for instance are going to be cantus firmus. There's a melody that was passed on and it was actually this song before it became this song and then it became this song. Like America the Beautiful is, uh, or yes, I think it's America the Beautiful. Uh, no, this land is, this land is your land, uh, is, is the one that has that, uh, it used to be an old Baptist hymn and then it became something else and then it became this land is your land. And so if you follow it back, it's actually like who wrote the, the song? I don't think anyone knows, it's one of those anonymous, right? And uh, so in our lives, 
in a sense, we all function with this cantus firmus, this fixed song. There is something at the root layer of our life. Uh, it's interesting because I've talked with multiple Christians and when they say, you know, it's like when I hear you speak, Eric, it's like you quote the same people that I would, that I read, you are attracted to the same things that I'm attracted to. It's like, what is that? Isn't that a fascinating thing? It's like, why is it that there could be another Christian out there and like whatever conclusion they come to, I'm like, I totally disagree with that. And I can almost guess, and I'll disagree with your next statement too. And I don't even know what your 20th statement from now is gonna be, but I have a hunch I'm gonna disagree with it. As, uh, what was it, Ed Kennedy, Edward Kennedy? Uh, it could have been Ted Kennedy. Uh, but uh, one of the statements that my grandpa used to say is, no, I think it was Ted, uh, you know how I vote? And we're like, uh, how, Grandpa? He goes, I find out what Ted Kennedy votes and I vote the opposite. <laughs> so that, in other words, you're singing a different song. There, there's something at the, at the baseline that you're, you're taking and you're, you're making it yours. And so when you look at our culture today, you have that uh, politically right and politically left and it, depending on which strain you are going to adopt is going to define all your other conclusions from there. Because you're taking a song and you're beginning to put your own lyrics to it. You're taking, and it's an ancient song, and it's been around for a long time. And so you can go back in the history books and realize that people have thought like this before you came along. You just sort of have a newfangled modern rendition to it. And that's the way that we all are in our own way, is we're taking something and building upon it. The question is, what are you building upon? So I, I, I could at least give you the official definition of pre-existing melody forming the basis of a musical composition. So it, during World War II, you're going to see a very defined song in the Soviet Union. And it's very different than the way many of us think in here. Okay, I should just say all of us think in here. If you're in here, you probably don't sing the Soviet song. It is very different ideologically, very different in sound. And when you, when you hear of like Churchill visiting Moscow, it's really funny uh, to hear him try and describe it because it's so different than Great Britain. Everything about it is weird and austere and awkward for him. And I mean, they have, he's driving down the road and the, the car has two inch thick glass on it. And he's like, what, what's this? He's like, precautions. <laughs> yeah, they live in the Soviet Union. Uh, and so as a result, there's this very different song being sung. And when you study uh, World War II and how Stalin is going to lead his, his men, his army is actually going to become very formidable. It's going to start out getting beat bad. Okay, so you're going to see the Soviet Russians being pushed back. And Stalin is going to rise up as a leader. And he is going to do certain things that are going to motivate his troops. And you could say, well done, Stalin. I mean, look, what, look at this army that you've created. This is rather powerful, this Red Army. Believe me, you would not want to be in the Red Army. You know how one of the ways that he motivated his troops? He would decimate them. You know what that means? Uh, you see, we know the word, but it comes from actually this time. That's one in ten. Randomly kill one in ten. Yeah. He would just go into towns and take, okay, we're going to take ten apartment complexes, and the managers of the ten compart uh, apartment complexes come out, I'm going to kill one of you. And what this did, I know, what, how could that motivate an army? That, that's a really good question. How could that motivate anyone? 
Fear. You know what drove the Russian army? Fear. They were in stark terror. They were fearful of this man and what he could do to them. So there was, especially in the beginnings of World War II, in the Operation Barbarossa where the Germans are attacking uh, the Soviets and pushing them back. I mean, it's looking really bad. And if the Soviet Union falls to Germany, the whole landscape of World War II goes different because now Germany has access to all the timber, has access to all the oil and all the farmlands of this massive territory, plus all the fighting men. You add that and layer that into the story and it shifts a lot because right now, most of Hitler's men are going to die fighting Soviet Russia. So as a result, one of the things that depleted Hitler's strength was actually Soviet Russia. So if Soviet Russia fell in the beginning, everything changes in world history. So in a sense, you're strangely going, go Stalin. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird thing to have to process through, right? So uh, in the very beginning, they have this problem with men running from battle and fleeing. Uh, okay, I get it. <laughs> and all you have to do is stick yourself in the shoes of a soldier and you recognize, yeah, it's flight for life uh, is what it is. In other words, if you knew you were going to die if you stayed and there is a nice path for you to run on, what do you think you're going to do? Yeah, human nature would say run. And so Stalin is going to address that and he is going to give an order. Stalin's order 270. So it's typically called in history order 270. And so if there, there probably is a book or something called Order 270. There has to be something about it because it's such a fascinating study in how sci the psychology of humans work. But somehow, this song that the Soviet Russians are singing, you could say, wow, that is a great song. Well, if your measurement is success in battle, I'm going to agree with you. If the only issue is winning in a war, uh, in World War II, well, what he did motivated his troops. So I'll, I'll briefly describe it. The long and short, it's called fight to the last or fight to the last man. Okay, so there was an order from Stalin that if they were ever surrounded or if there was any situation, but if, especially when they were surrounded, because in a lot of situations they were being surrounded and if a soldier could sneak out and get away, well, of, of course, why wouldn't he, uh, he do that? Because then he could fight another day. Stalin made it illegal to do that. You cannot save your own skin. So if any soldier even backed up in battle when they were being attacked, their officers, which stood behind them, had guns aimed at them. If they ever backed up, they would be immediately shot. You could not retreat, even if it would be wise. So thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Soviet soldiers are going to die because they cannot move from their position any other way but forward. Order 270. And there's consequences if you end up getting shot because of a retreat. Your family will be cut off from receiving any supplies or food during the war. So could you imagine being the man and having, okay, are you seeing the motivation? Are you, are you hearing the song? So the Cantus Firmus, that which is being underlaid here, is actually an ancient song. It is not just something that Stalin is inventing. It is the song of fear. 
And the song of fear has been the song of war throughout the ages and generations. So anyone attempting to surrender instead of fighting on must be immediately shot by their superiors and their family members back home. Oh, they're not shot by their family members back home. That, That reads incorrectly. And their family members back home must be deprived of any state welfare and assistance. Oh, wow. That is, that's quite the motivation. You have to admit it. For all the guys in here, could you imagine having to process that through? Uh, this is a very difficult one. So Joseph Stalin, you can just sort of see the, the mindset. Uh, and this is a famous quote that he has uh, laid out, which is, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths a statistic. Which isn't necessarily showing him as a cold-hearted man. It's just a factual statement. And he's right in, in a strange way, he's right that if you know of one person dying, that's terrible. But when you hear that, oh, well, yes, a million people died in this uh, part of the, the theater of war, you just shrug your shoulders like, oh, that's terrible. It's just a t- statistic. It's not personal. And that's exactly what is going to happen in the Soviet song. It is going to become impersonal when you have 27 million people dying in World War II. You, you get the point. This is like impersonal deaths. It's just to win the war, to save the motherland, we will expend whatever percent we must of our people. And it loses its personal touch. You don't care about the individual, and that's the Soviet song. You really don't care about the individual, you care about Mother Russia. And as a result, you are losing, you're going off reservation from the biblical pattern. This is not the way God intended it. So the British song, now, you notice that I've, I've stood for the British throughout this, this whole thing. You know, I've identified with Winston Churchill. However, on this one, you're going to see me throw a little, uh, you know, jab at uh, the British because I'm going to say that their song in World War I and in World War II is not necessarily the song I think we should sing as Christians. And that which is motivating them, even though it is far more noble, I'm, I'm just going to acknowledge that, far more noble than the, than the Soviet song, there is still something wrong. And I'm saying fighting because of pride. Pride is another motivator. Have you ever seen that it's like the guys sign up because they want to look good to their community. They want their girlfriend to think of them as noble and as bold and as brave. Okay, so the Order of the White Feather, which is what I ended up naming uh, this message after since, you know, it fits and it's a little more artistic. And, uh, but anyone, the, the, the message would be anyone who isn't fighting is a coward. So what they would do is they, they, they created this order of the white feather and they're going to gather together all the, the pretty young British ladies that are passionate about patriotism. And they're going to give them an assignment. And it's not the easiest assignment, but they're going to do it <coughs> very well. And they're going to have white feathers. And whenever they see a young man of fighting age that is not in a soldier's uniform and is not actually showing in some evident way that he is fighting for his country, they are going to publicly shame him by sticking a white feather in his coat. And there is no greater shame in all of Great Britain than to get a white feather. I mean, it is like you are ostracized. You are of, you, you got a white feather. I mean, there is nothing worse for a man than to get the white feather. And so a lot of guys would literally hide inside through let's talk about a quarantine a self-quarantine uh in this time for fear of getting 
a white feather, running into the order of the white feather. Isn't that an interesting motivation? And so a lot of men, instead of trying to cower and hide from the order of the white feather, are going to go to war. Okay, it works, guys. It, it actually works. And so they're going to do this in World War I, and then they're actually going to do this again in World War II. Now, what's interesting is the soldiers don't like this. And you'd say, well, why wouldn't they? Wouldn't they be happy to have people come over? Well, some of them were coerced because of the shame that was pending upon them. And so they find themselves fighting in a war that they actually may not have signed up for if they didn't have this pressure. But then, if you're injured in war and you're sent home, did you know that they were so vulnerable? And this was like terrible for the, the soldiers. If, if they're going around on a bus and they get, they'd get white feathers still, even though they're, they're actually home because they you know, actually were injured in the war. And if anyone was home on leave, which is a very common thing, they'd get the white feather, even though they've been fighting over there. So this, this like, it, it became this weird, soupy system which really bugged the soldiers. It's like, could we quit this thing? But this was the song that was sung. It was a pride issue. And so Great Britain, even though it's, I mean, if I could choose, I'm choosing the white feather over Order 270, okay? It's, it's like, I, I, don't want, uh, I don't want Stalin's song, but I also don't like this one. And when you think about Christianity and what moves us as soldiers, that's what I'm, I'm getting at. What is the undergirding? What is the fixed song in our life that we are, that God is taking our unique individual life and writing lyrics to it? that he is expressing his kingdom power and his glory in and through our unique lives, but with the same old song. What is that? So the Christian song, fighting because of love. So Jesus Christ is going to say in Matthew 7, 24 through 25. So cantus firmus, here's a cantus firmus for us. This is the fixed song. This is the underpinning. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains, rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. What we want is to have soldiers that are like that. That's what every general desires. Soldiers like this. Well, it's, the secret isn't that they're founded on fear or that they're founded on pride. It's that they're founded on something more firm an adherence to something. We as Christians are actually the best soldiers, even though I'd say in this generation we haven't necessarily proven so. Technically, historically, the greatest soldiers are the soldiers of the cross. I'm not talking about physical battle. I'm talking about spiritual battle, which is still a war. It's still a battle. And when we go to war, there is nothing that will cause us to retreat. We don't retreat, but it has nothing to do with someone having a gun aimed at our back, and we are happy to go off to war. And it's not because we have the threat of shame of someone sticking a white feather in our coat. You see, we are going to move forward based on a different motivation, a different cantus firma. We are founded on the rock. So the cantus firma of the church of Jesus Christ is the word of God. The word of God in text, scripture. The word of God in person, Jesus Christ. The word of God in action, the cross. This is our cantus firma. This is what is the same story, the same song, and each of us takes our lives and writes new lyrics to it, if you will. We are a unique expression of this song. So 
each one of us is singing with the same melody line. And so it's like, I know that song. So when I sing up here on stage, you're like, wait a minute, that's the song I was singing when I was laying in bed this morning. How did you get that? Where, how did you get my melody? Well, it's not your melody. It's like, and you're looking at me going, it's not your melody. I think we're all right. I think we're on to something here. This is the melody of the Holy Spirit. See, he's the one that carries along the writers of the New Testament, I'm sorry, of the, of the Bible, to write th this entire thing known as Scripture. He's the one that carries them along. Who filled Jesus Christ? Who is the one that was animating him and making this all work? The Holy Spirit. Who's the one that is going to orchestrate and architect that cross? It's the Holy Spirit. Who's the one that is going to then come to us with that same sound, that same song? It's the cantus firma. It's the word of God. The Holy Spirit is grounding us on the same exact thing. So the canis firmus of a Christian, you know, what does it lead to? If we were just to enunciate, this is what it looks like in every single one that the Holy Spirit gains control of. Isn't that amazing? We all end up singing the same song, but we look different. We're different heights, different weights, different hair colors, different ages, there's only two genders. I was going to say different genders, but I just wanted to prep you by knowing that before I said it. <laughs> In other words, there's different expressions of it, different accents, different skin colors. I mean, it's just amazing how many varieties can come out with the same cantus firmus, the same underpinning melody. Fearless and courageous. That, that's a soldier of the cross right there. Well, how do you know, sir? Fearless and courageous. Faithful and true. Merciful and kind. Now, as you go through this list, you see this is the way the church is, right? But who is this way? Jesus. This is who he is, so the soldiers of the cross are actually indwelt by the very king of kings himself, and that's why we begin to take on that same form. Immovable and unstoppable. Bold and daring, rejoicing amidst trials, singing amidst storms. This is the cantus firmus, the melody line that each of us sings, though we sing it in different callings, different expressions, different time periods of history. This is the, the song of the redeemed. Alexander the Great, uh, I call this, this, this slide as Alexander's Offering. So he would stay up through the night before battle and he would offer sacrifices unto Phobos, which is the god of fear. Ancient war has always been built on fear. And so you're going to see this migration in the history of war to this more noble sense of, and so you're going to see the, uh, <clears throat> that, that Spartan line uh, that is going to come out, which is going to be based on Pride and shame, the worst thing could ever happen to a soldier as you begin to progress through history is that they would run from the battle. And so as a result, there's going to be a cultural pressure to stand your ground and hold your territory. And so you're going to see generals as time pass, they're going to pick their song and they're going to then shape their, their soldiers after a song, but it's an earthly song. It's like either a Soviet song or a British song, basically. It's like, which one do you want to go with? Do you want to go with the fear? Or do you want to go with the sense of nobility? There were mothers 
that this was so ingrained in that would reject their sons if they ever retreated and came home with their tail between their legs. You're not my son. I mean, this was like, you'd lose your home. Uh, your mom would reject you if you ever came home. It's better to die in battle than to come home a coward. And so you, you see this, the culture, this cantus firmus that was the underpinning of war history. So when you study war history, you're going to see this. It's just everywhere throughout history. What we as the Christians are doing is a new song is being introduced at the cross. There is a new power. There's a new way of engaging in battle. It is shifting before our eyes. Peter's offering. So now you have the apostle Peter who is going to war. Right? This man is going to, he's going to try in his own strength. Jesus, I will never deny you. I, I'll stand with you. I'll, I'd gladly die with you. And then he's going to uh, deny him three times. I mean, come on, bud, what was that? It's the same thing all of us will do. You see, our own moxie and our own song that we try and sing is still going to falter and fail. But there is something that is going to change Peter. And <clears throat> what was I talking about? Lydia last night about it. She has a little necklace that says Desiderio Domini. Do you guys remember? That's the famed statement that... Uh, that uh, Peter is going to say, it's not in the Bible, but it's in Christian history where this, this man comes up to him because Peter would often cry. In, in Christian history, it's noted that he would often cry. And so this, he was a huge hulking guy, uh, so a big guy. And so every now and then he'd just sort of choke up and start uh, crying. And so, and the saints would watch like, what's going on with Peter? And then when a cock would crow, it would, he would cry. Uh, it was like, it would trigger something, that memory and so finally a saint got bold enough to come up to him and say, Peter, why do you cry? He says, Desiderio Domini. Well, at least that's how it's passed out in history. I don't know that he spoke in Latin. Uh, and, which means, I dearly long to be with my Lord. Isn't that a, just a beautiful statement? In other words, this is the motivation. What is motivating Peter? So when he is brought to his end and he is going to be crucified on a cross, he actually out of honor and deference for his Lord, asks to be crucified upside down lest he dishonor his Lord's cross. Who does that? That's like going the extra mile. You know, you don't need a gun behind you, uh, Order 270 from Stalin, when you have Desiderio Domini going on inside of you. You go the extra mile. You're one of those guys that goes running into the opposition. They're coming around you like, hey! And you go running right in there. What's going on in these guys? This is something altogether otherworldly. It's called Christianity. Fearless, bold and daring, immovable, but full of love and forgiveness at the same time. The super-conquering Lord of battles, his name is Jesus. So you could have Alexander the Great. Remember, something is going to shift. You could have Napoleon, but something is shifting at that cross where you have these great mighty conquerors, but they function after earthly songs. They have earthly patterns. They're going to study. I mean, these guys study war history. I mean, every single one of these great military men that you could, you could get to know, they are students of other military men. They're students of, 
a, a style, a Machiavelli or a Napoleon style? And how do they want to bring it out in their generation? What is this, the pattern? And so people would study Mussolini, for instance. The Argentinian government would like come and they would study under Mussolini to figure out how he moved his troops with such exactness and with such efficiencies. And so we're all inspired by something. The question is, who's inspiring us as the church? I'm very inspired by the one known as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of battles. He's my study. I want to know how he leads his men, his women into battle. So his soldiers all have the same thing going for him. If you were to study the soldiers of Jesus Christ, they have something going for him. You know, like when you look at all the soldiers of the German Reich, there's a, there's a way that we would describe them. Uh, if you just look at them, they, they never smile. I mean, they, they would never smile. But boy, are they disciplined. Are they vigorous and are they mean? The same thing with the Japanese. If you, look, if you think of the stereotype of the Japanese soldier, the Americans and the British, they feared one key thing and that was falling into the hands of the Japanese. I mean, it's bad to fall into the hands of the Germans, but to fall in the hands of the Japanese, there's nothing worse, right? It was a fierceness. They were loyal to the death. They were, I mean, most of them would say they're fanatics or crazy. That's how the Americans would describe them. They were crazy. <laughs> and yet, what you would say if you were a, a military man, you say, well, that works. Yeah, that works until the war trials afterwards. <laughs> and, yeah, it really works effectively to scare your enemy during, but, you know, in the day of modern warfare, there are penalties on the backside if you lose. And so, look at this, though. His soldiers, speaking of Jesus, all have the same thing going for them. They f and so, I, I crossed this out because this isn't going to be the right answer. They fear losing more than the other man. So, when you take Alexander's day, there's another one on the other side, and whoever fears losing the most and is motivated to win this the, 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 the most is usually going to come out the, the bay. That's why we give sacrifice to the God of fear. You know, well, we don't, but they did back then. That's what the soldiers would do. That's what the, the, the generals would do. So that isn't it. Or how about this one? They are more proud and arrogant than the other man. No, that's, that's not it. What is it that distinguishes the soldiers of the cross? Listen to this. They love the other man. <laughs> well, that turns the tables, guys. <laughs> That's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? You see, instead of fearing losing, instead of arrogance and pride, I can't lose this thing. How can I face uh, the, the, those back home? Instead, it's we enter into battle recognizing who our enemy is. And that in an actual battle, when we are confronted, whether it's by LGBTQ, whether it's by just the liberal side and the liberal slant in any form that wants to silence and to entrap us, whatever it is, they want us dead. And we love them. We fight our battle completely different because we're following and heeding a different song. We have a different contest firmus. So Paul the Apostle, this is 1 Corinthians 13, you guys are very familiar with it, but listen to this in light of a battle tactic, a, a cantus firmus. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. 
If we're going to carry something into this battle, we want it to profit. We want it to work. We're looking for the ultimate song to underlay what we're doing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The cantus firmus of the modern age and the bait to sing along. So there is a song typically called the spirit of the age in every generation. The zeitgeist is the, is the German word for it. But there is a song in every generation and in a sense, we have a susceptibility to really like it. You know, when you, when you live in a certain generation, there's certain songs and styles that are attractive to you. Like, I remember when I was growing up and I was learning how to sing, uh, they were moving, it's, it's called placement, they were moving the placement around, and, and when you move it, uh, if it's in the very back, it's an opera sound, very full and vibrata, vibrato-esque. And then you, if you move it a little closer to the wobbly thing, the uvula in the back of your throat, it's a musical theater. Still very full and not very cool is the way I would have said it when I was young. And then if you move it a little more forward, it's, it's right at the roof of your mouth called the peanut butter placement. And it's sort of a ballad sound. And a little too meh, old school for Eric, right? And then if you keep moving it forward, it was a rock sound. I'm like, I like the sound of that. It's interesting because even my ear I knew what I liked, and it was a sound. It was a thinner sound. I didn't like the big, rich uh, opera sound. If you move past that, and it bounces out here, it's hard to explain. It's a hard rock sound, okay? And I didn't like that as much as the, just the teeth placement, okay? Because, and why? Well, it was because it's the song of the age. It's the song of my generation. It's the cantus firmus. And so, as a result, I resonate with it very easily. There is a correctness out there in this world, a way you are supposed to live. There's certain things right now that if you do them, you look like you're correct with the world. I mean, I, I see it all around me. Okay, I mean, it, I was just at the store this morning. I know when someone is looking cool now. The COVID cool. We have a whole COVID cool thing going on. <laughs> and yet, our song is different. Are we willing to stand apart from the world to make sure that the, the cantus firmus that underlays our life is not altered. We sing a song of boldness, of love, of fearlessness, of mercy, of peace, of joy. May that song not be altered because we are trying to adapt to a culture that is actually sliding off a cliff right now. Let's make sure that we remember the ancient song of Jesus Christ. Father, underlay us with your song. Lord, may your word be our rock. And I pray that you would express to this world around us your nature and your character in and through us, your church. We love you and trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an 
entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.